Recovery Elevator, episode 415. Man, my relationship with alcohol is not great. My relationship with other people is not great. And I feel like alcohol has become that, you know, toxic friendship that I'm just kind of gripping onto when I'm uncomfortable with life. Uh, like this? Yeah, that should work. Mix down. <laughs> yeah, keep going. Yo, yo. Mix down. Three, four. Yo, yo. Wiki, wiki. Three, mix down. Four, there we go. Seven, eight. Wiki, wiki. Mix down. Guys in the house. <laughs> I love it. Wiki, wiki. Mix down. There we go. Three, four. Wiki, wiki. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I am so excited to be here with you today. Listeners, on today's podcast, we have Jory. She's 31 years old from Westford, Vermont, and took her last drink on September 20th, 2020. Great job, Jory. Sober travel, April 12th to the 21st. We're going to Costa Rica, and we have two spots left. Deadline to register is Friday, February 24th. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Robin. I want to say thank you to all our Cafe RE chat hosts. You guys do an incredible job. Okay, this upcoming Saturday, February 11th at noon Eastern, we start our six-week sober ukulele course. You're going to learn the basics of how to play the ukulele, how to meditate with the instrument, and you're going to connect with others whose goal is to live an alcohol-free life. All Saturday sessions are live, but you can watch the recording if you miss a class. There are also office hours during the week if you need additional help or just want to hang out and jam with the ukulele. This course starts in about 10 days, which means you still got time to pick up a a ukulele. And we've got a 15% off coupon from Kala. It's 23 Elevator. Um, Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Robin. All right, let's get started. Okay, today let's talk dopamine. If we are to properly discuss alcohol addiction, we will soon come to the molecule dopamine. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter commonly coined as the pleasure molecule, but that's not entirely correct. Dopamine is more accurately described as the learning molecule. However, it's definitely a combination of both. So dopamine is the molecule that has kept us alive for thousands of years. It's the chemical that drives us to eat, to find warmth, shelter, to find a mate, and puts a smile on our face when we high five or hug another human being. Another neat fact about dopamine is once we take action towards a goal or we take that first step, we get a little blast of dopamine. Now, dopamine is what kept the Beringians walking across the Beringer Strait around 20,000 years ago from Russia to Alaska and then into the Americas. The human dopamine system is like a seesaw. As a dopamine hit brings about pleasure, it is then quickly followed by pain or a lack of dopamine. So we've all heard what goes up must come down, which exemplifies the dopamine system perfectly. Now, this is to keep us motivated and worked great when we were hunters and gatherers, when we had to constantly search for our basic needs. This would be food, water, and shelter. But in the modern world we live in today, we live in a world of abundance rather than scarcity, and our brains have not evolved for the fire hose of dopamine of sugar, social media, TV, sex, drugs, alcohol for us, or any other number of dopamine-triggering stimuli that are so easily available today. In short, it could be said that in the modern era, we are all addicts running from fix to fix, which is a reason why on average, people open their smartphones around 100 times per day, averaging 2,600 swipes, taps, or touches daily. Holy shit. But for those listening today, we are chatting dopamine and alcohol. Many of us reached a rotten phase in our drinking when we no longer drank to feel good, 
but we drank to feel normal. And I know there's some heads out there nodding right now. This is 100% tied to dopamine. When we drink, we open the floodgates to the dopamine system, whatever stores we have left up there. And then the dopamine system tries to reset itself by creating a deficit the next day or next couple days. We are then even more motivated to reach for that drink to offset the treacherous feelings of the dopamine deficit. When people do cold plunges or ice baths, it has the same effect on the dopamine system, but it's opposite. You experience the pain of the cold water first, then once you get out of that cold tub, you get a rush of feel-good dopamine afterward. Cold plungers are chasing dopamine just like alcoholics. Now, countless books have been written on what addiction is and its causes. I don't think it's any one thing, but many things. And one reason why some are more susceptible for addiction than others is based on the makeup of their dopamine system. We have nearly 8 billion humans on the planet, and there are 8 billion different dopamine systems. We don't all experience pleasure and pain the same. I feel those who struggle with addiction have enhanced dopamine receptors or a highly sensitized dopamine system. What I mean is, when we put our hands in front of a fire, we don't all feel the warmth equally or the same. Not everyone has the same experience when we take our first drink of alcohol. One commonality I've noticed after interviewing hundreds on this podcast is that when we, or those who struggle with alcohol, take our first drink, there is a light show going off in that dopamine system. It's like we, we discovered the holy grail, right? And on the flip side, I've asked many normal drinkers what, what it was like when they had their first drink, and the common response was, eh, yeah, it was okay. So again, I think those with enhanced dopamine receptors are more prone to addiction. Having enhanced dopamine receptors used to be an evolutionary asset. We walked just a little further than others to find what we needed to survive. However, in the modern era, today, enhanced dopamine receptors, it almost backfires and it sets us up for addictions. Now, let's get real for a second. We need that dopamine as, as human beings. It's, it's what kept us alive, after all, for thousands of years. Uh, the issue, though, is when we are reaching for alcohol to get that dopamine fix over and over and over. It just hijacks the system, and it's not built for that. So what are better forms or healthier ways to get dopamine? Well, here are two that I highly recommend and very applicable to recovery. First one is intimate connection with other human beings. We know that when we make an intimate connection with other human beings, oxytocin binds with dopamine, releasing neurons in the reward pathway, and dopamine is released and it feels really good. The opposite of addiction is connection. Here's another way to release healthy dopamine. This is radical honesty. Here at RE, we call it burning the ships. You do this internally with yourself and you can do this with others. So dopamine is released when we are radically honest with ourselves and others. Studies show that when we are honest about who we are, what we can and can't control, a healthy amount of dopamine is released. Now, to be fair, dopamine is released when we are dishonest, but this is the learning molecule and it's reinforcing brain pathways that do not lead towards wholeness. Again, radical honesty or burning the ships is a great way to cue dopamine. And here's another thing to remember with dopamine. Neurologically, neurons that fire together wire together. When we drink, we reinforce dopamine pathways related to alcohol, making it harder for us to release dopamine in other healthier ways. 
Now, if you're interested in dopamine and want to learn more about this, I highly recommend the book Dopamine Nation by Dr. Anna Lemke. There's a link in the show notes. Thank you, Robin. Okay, I hope you enjoyed this intro on dopamine. Before we hear from Jory, let's hear from our sponsor, Soberlink. Did you know there are 15 million people in the United States with an alcohol use disorder? And yet, there's still a stigma that surrounds addiction and recovery. We need to stop being ashamed and start sharing in our sobriety. That's why we're so excited to have a sponsor like Soberlink who shares in our beliefs. If you haven't heard of Soberlink Alcohol Monitoring System, it's the perfect accountability tool for those in recovery. It can help you rebuild trust and get back on track despite slips or relapses. We've teamed up with Soberlink to provide you with tips for handling a relapse, which is a guide that can be downloaded at www.soberlink.com forward slash recovery dash elevator. On that page, you'll also find a form to sign up for a $50 off promo code for you or a loved one who is ready to take the next steps in their recovery journey. Jory, how are you? I'm awesome. How are you, Paul? Yeah, Jory. I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for asking. I got in before this interview about 15 minutes before the scheduled time. I had icicles on my eyebrows, on my eyelashes. It was a, It's supposed to be a high of negative 12 today in Montana, and it was negative 12 uh, while I was shoveling snow. I was bundled up. I was warm, but my goodness, we're supposed to shatter some, some records with this cold front that's coming in. But I uh, got my workout done this morning. Because when it's that cold, the snow turns into heavy ice blocks, <laughs> like the Inuits use to make igloos. So I'm actually feeling pretty good right now. I've warmed up, took a hot shower. I'm ready. Uh, and, and and probably my favorite part about, not probably, without a doubt, my favorite part of doing Recovery Elevator is this right here, connecting with another person who's made the decision to quit drinking uh, by far. Yeah. So how are you feeling about the interview, Jory? I feel so good. I think I copied you a tiny bit. I did go for a six mile run right before this. And I took a nice hot shower as well, but it was only 22 degrees this morning in Vermont. So I, I didn't quite kill your temperature record there, but Jewelry. my eyes were able to open. So I think good. your story taught me there, back it up, a six mile run and you're in Virginia, yeah. no Vermont. Vermont. Yes. You're in Vermont in 22 like, oh. degrees. Yeah. All right. Is it would fires you up like that in the morning, like a run, it's good. Yeah, I'm guessing you lost a bet. I did not lose a bet. I actually do it to myself on purpose, believe it or not. Kind of calms me down a little bit, but I'm also training for my second marathon that I just signed up for. Ah, okay. Yeah, I was getting on the losing the bet thing. Uh, <laughs> running is is quite gratifying, especially when you hit that runner's high, which is really the flow state. That's when endorphins are coming in. Your mind's not in the past. It's not in the present or not in the past, not in the future. You are in the sweet spot of the present moment. And I so imagine right in the present. Otherwise, I'm gonna slip on my face. Ah, so for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I imagine <laughs> sobriety has uh, allowed you to run faster, farther, yep. and train for marathons. And and we'll cover all that stuff uh, in the interview. But Jory, uh, when was your last drink? Uh, my last drink was September nineteenth, twenty 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 twenty. September nineteenth. Yeah, 2020. I think those sobriety dates in the middle of the pandemic are the most gangster sobriety dates I've heard. How does are it they? feel you're two and a half or two and some change away from alcohol and you quit during the pandemic? Just before we get into you, just real quick, talk about that. So pandemic, I think that it was a really, I mean, obviously tragedy, all the bad things happened, but a couple of good things happened too. I think 
a lot of us were kind of forced um, to sit by ourselves and kind of have to think a little bit more about what our lives were about. So when COVID happened, uh, I did get laid off for a short period of time, like everybody did, or a lot of people did. And in Vermont, maybe a lot of other places, we were ordering from restaurants still to try to keep local local businesses open. And there were these huge alcohol sales, like takeout gallon buckets of booze to continue to drink at home. And it just kind of, it got me to the point just asking questions and, and being really curious about my relationship with alcohol. And I think that the more I thought about it, the more scared I got about it and thinking about not having it as an option to handle my aloneness or sitting in isolation and being like, what is this feeling in my body? So I think that's how COVID definitely helped shine a light on some things that needed some balancing. Sure. You're, you're right. The pandemic brought uh, a catastrophe across the globe. We lost a lot of human life, but one pro, I, I like what you said, you think about what our lives are all about. There was an intense time of repose for all of us. We were stuck inside and I myself became extra content, contemplative. Yeah. Extra contemplative about those somewhat existential questions. I really had time to brainstorm, where's my life going? Where do I want it to go? What type of experiences do I want to have? All that stuff. Um, I like how you said that. And Jory, before we get uh, too far into this interview, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, uh, do you have a family? And, and most importantly, Jory, what do you like to do for fun? Sounds like oh. running. Yes. So I am 31 years old. I am. I live in Vermont. It's a little chilly right now, like I said before. I was born and raised here. I love it. It's it's a great place to live. And mostly for outdoor stuff besides running that I like to do, I love playing hockey. guess I'm kind of an ice junkie a little bit. And then, like I said, training for a marathon. And I like writing. That's not something that's active or it's, it's helpful for my brain. You say writing or riding? Like writing, writing, not writing anything. I'm terrified of horses. But um, writing, I write every day and it really helps kind of get my brain into the present moment. Um, so I'm not constantly trying to think about the future. That tends to be where my anxiety sort of leads me. And then uh, what I do for a living, I'm an athletic trainer and I work at a local high school. And I also, I have my own business. So I um, see a bunch of clients in the morning and then I supervise uh, sporting events and wait for injuries to happen at high school. Wow. Okay. Yeah, talk to me about ice hockey. Do you play right now? I do. Yeah. I am part of a co-ed league and a beer league or NA beer league, whatever you want to call it. It's a lot of fun. I've been playing since I was a kid. Yeah. I played in, and I almost said the word beer league before you said it. I was thinking because <laughs> that's kind of what it's called. Adult that beer is league exactly hockey. kind of what it is. Anyway. Yeah. I played, I played in high school and I've probably played 10 years of adult beer league hockey. Sorry if that's triggering, but the locker room I remember was so supportive. Uh, a couple, if if you're the player of the game, and we had like 30 games a season, so I got it a couple times. Uh, you're supposed to take home a bottle of, of of alcohol, right? Like a whiskey, like a really nice bottle of whiskey. Oh, yeah. And every time it was like, "Hey, great job!" But and people would make an announcement in the whole locker room. But Churchill, he's not taking the bottle home. I'll take this for him. I'll take the shot. It's cool. Even beer league hockey, people are still so supportive. They are. It was actually kind of a heartbreaking moment in a good way. One of uh, it was probably like a year in. I wasn't, I hadn't burned on my, I haven't, I didn't share with anybody quite yet that I wasn't drinking, but I wasn't, you know, when they would go around at the end, end of the night and hand out beer, I was saying no. And people were noticing 
And finally, one of my teammates asked me, you know, he's like, what, why aren't you drinking? You used to drink more than everybody. Like, what's the problem? I'm like, nothing's a problem. I'm just not, not looking to, to drink before I drive home. Uh, I'm not really drinking right now. And so the next game, he had brought the cooler and he had brought some, um, some NA beers in there for me. And he handed one to me and it was just like, oh my gosh, I feel it was one of the scariest points thinking about playing the sport I love with all these people um, and being judged in that way. And it was just like, oh, I can still do this. And it's still a blast and I don't need to get wasted. It's awesome. Jory, I love that story. And with ice hockey, and I think softball is similar, but ice hockey, you do, you do two things. You play the game and then you drink beer in the locker room with all your players. And one of the scariest parts about this journey, and it doesn't have to be listeners, and Jory just gave us a fantastic anecdote about that, is, is telling other people. And in RE, we call this burning the ships, right? But when you are almost forced to burn the ships uh, on a micro level or, or just one-on-one and, and you get past that and the next game, they bring you NA drinks in a cooler. It just, it's like this, oh my God. All right. I, I, I think I can do this. I, I can tell somebody else. And I'm going to stamp this right now. Community accountability, opposite of addiction is connection. Opposite of addiction is connection. Slow it down, Pablo. My body's still trying to warm up. But burning the ships, I think, is the most important thing we can do on this journey. You have to burn it with other people and you have to burn it internally, right? Getting honest with yourself. But it's like this math equation. You burn the ships, that equals accountability. Accountability is then going to equal community. It just leads to the, to, the, to the next step almost organically. You just have to make that first decision to burn the ships. Jory, let's get into your story with alcohol. We've already unpacked it a little bit. But when did you first recognize that uh, the alcohol wasn't serving you? You're 31 right now. Yeah. Back it up a little bit. When did it start? Yeah. So I think that a lot of our stories start off when we are young. And, you know, if, if we're coming from an easy childhood, it's like a more difficult childhood makes a stronger person in a lot of ways. I didn't actually start drinking until I was an adult. So I, I had grown up. And before I start anything, I just have to quickly say I love my friends and family they're still deeply integrated in my life. Everybody does the best they can. And it's nobody's fault that any of this happens. It's just, I think it's a growth opportunity for everybody. When we talk about it out loud, it can be uncomfortable, but we can do it. It's okay. But I didn't start drinking until I was after college and not even heavily at first. I grew up in a divorced house. So my father has an alcohol problem and so do my my stepmom. And on the other side, my mother did not, but there was a lot of emotional miscommunication and uh, a lack of support. And I, I studied really hard. I loved school. I played sports. Um, I had no interest in diving into something that wasn't allowing me to, to grow into the person I was supposed to be. So I, through high school, college, no drinking. And then I had, I had been dating someone, my ex-husband, who's amazing, since I was 18. We got married when I was 27. And we got divorced when I was, was this year that finalized? I'm trying to think of the years, but 2022, we got divorced early this year. And that kind of highlighted some of the relationship imbalances that I've had with not only romantic relationships, but my whole family and friends dynamic. After COVID in 2020, we spent a lot of time together and apart. And when I was kind of forcing myself to sit without any booze in my system and, and no other 
outlet, it was, it was sort of frightening um, to think that I can't really run to alcohol if I want to. And I have to teach myself a different way to cope with some of those strong emotions. So the heavy drinking kind of centralized around when I got married in 2018. There were some things between my ex-husband and I that I don't really want to dive into. But when you try to, I was trying to grow in one direction and he was trying to grow in another. And it was difficult to try to mesh the stories together when we were both enmeshed in our own mental health um, and emotional health problems. Anyway, that is kind of a little snippet of where the drinking started and escalated and ended. <laughs> Jory, would you consider yourself an, a normal drinker for a while, maybe 2018 and prior, or was there a chapter in your life when you, you were a normal drinker? I think that alcohol was the easiest drug to exploit for me. I believe that before 2018, I had other ways of ignoring my emotional needs. And there was a lot of workaholism. I don't know. There, I was at work for long periods of time. I, you know, I did a lot of other things to distract myself from what was happening, but it was a slow burn. I started, you know, whiskey was my thing. So I started there and it just kind of progressed over time. You know, I didn't even look at my life and was like, wow, I got a serious problem with alcohol. It's, it wasn't like that. I wasn't homeless. I wasn't I didn't have DUIs. I wasn't, it, there wasn't a, a moment where I was like, this is rock bottom. It was a slow burn for sure. Jory, I love how you said the word slow burn. You said it twice and I was going to expand on that. One of the most dangerous things about alcohol is, is the rate of the progression, right? So let's take meth or, or Coke. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. there's a precipitous decline that happens fast, but with alcohol, it kills by the inches or the centimeter, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it, it just happens slow. And the progression happens before we even realize it. And then once we say, oh, shit, I think this might be a problem. It's almost way too late, right? Clarification there. I haven't met one person that can't quit, that hasn't quit drinking. That's really put in the time. Like everybody can do that without a doubt. I firmly believe that. But that's one dangerous thing about alcohol. It's a slow burn, like you said. And we and, and with that slow burn, it gives us time to justify, to say, hey, we're hanging, my friends are drinking the same. Everything is still hanging, like going well in my life. I haven't had these external repercussions. I like how you said that there. So you get married in 2018. Did the drinking ramp up? That's what it sounds like. Yeah, it was kind of a, that was when I, I was looking back at pictures of my phone before this interview, just trying to prepare memories and what, and I'm, I'm looking through all the pictures of my phone and I'm noticing all of them, all the moments I felt like were necessary to capture, I was either drinking or had a drink that day. And I was just, I kind of am questioning now and still am learning even two years later or more, more than two years later, how much my relationship with, with alcohol was just poisonous, but it's so socially acceptable. Nobody, if you are a meth addict and you're not doing meth anymore, nobody's going to be like, oh, why did you stop doing meth? Yeah, great point. <laughs> what why do we get questioned or why is there a special special highlight on us just because we chose to stop drinking and and did you have some times when you tried to quit and it didn't go as planned or was november 20th 2020 uh, was that when you tried to quit i definitely during that summer of 2020 i made 
I'm not very proud of this and I'm, I'm happy that I'm sharing it out loud. My brother and I had made a bet that we could go three weeks without drinking. And that would mean that our relationship with alcohol is just fine. We're not alcoholics. We're good. Whatever. Three weeks went by and, you know, we were both dry for most of it, which, you know, I mean, time away from alcohol is great time, but we weren't really doing anything to, to figure out why we, we had a problem with that. And then he had a beer on the last day of the three weeks. And I just railed into him and had so much just like, see, I told you, I told you you couldn't do it. And meanwhile, I had actually had a sip of tequila a couple of days before that with some of my friends and didn't tell anybody. And it was just like, oh my gosh, what is wrong with me? <laughs> like, uh, what, okay. what is going through my head that I need to shame somebody else in that way to feel better about myself? And that moment alone, not even not being able to prove to myself that I couldn't go three weeks, but how much I had to put my brother down to feel good about what I've done really highlighted some problems for me. Big time. Yeah. So I tried to get sober for a while beforehand. It's just not seriously. It more highlighted the problem for me. Yeah. I tried to get sober beforehand. And then I think you added some accountability with your brother. Uh-huh. Okay. And then uh, you said you almost shamed him to solidify your relationship with alcohol internally. Say, oh, he didn't do it. I did it. But even though oh, two yeah. days before I had a sip of tequila with some friends, I, I, I resonate. I know there's a lot of listeners right now shaking their heads saying, yes, I have gone a certain amount of time away from alcohol to internally appease those emotions that are saying, do I have a problem with alcohol? I can't. I just went six months. I just went three months. Yeah. I just went two days. No problem there. Yeah. 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 I, I've got, I've done plenty of those. And I, at the end, I was even going two days without alcohol. I'd be like, mm-hmm. you see universe, we're good. <laughs> We and then I black out for four days straight and be like, wow, I got to go one day more without alcohol to prove it. It's just, it's asinine. It really is. Thinking is flawed. Uh, reality is, is we're not in check with reality. I, I hear you there. So after that three weeks, I don't know, you, you mostly did it. Get us up to speed. What happened after that? Yeah. So that just highlighted to me that I needed to pay more attention to this and get more curious about it. I had made it my life's mission subconsciously to not pay attention to the scary things and to look the other way, I found myself to be so uncomfortable with looking at anything that made me uncomfortable that I would do anything to, to ignore that. So I started getting curious about it instead of trying to push it away. And I started trying to read some things. I've read, I read Untamed, not sure, by Glennon Doyle. And I read We're the Luckiest. I read a bunch of different books just to try to educate. And then I found Cafe RE and I'm hearing all these stories from people who are just like me, who are, you know, didn't necessarily hit a rock bottom per se, but are like, man, my relationship with alcohol is not great. My relationship with other people is not great. And I feel like alcohol has become that, you know, toxic friendship that I'm just kind of gripping onto when I'm uncomfortable with life. And I have these strong emotions that I haven't been taught to cope with before. Mm. And so I know what this life is. I know what my life looks like when I'm drinking. And I want to see what my life can look like when I'm not drinking. Yeah, Jory, listeners know the question is coming sometime in the interview, but you might've just answered it. There was not a rock bottom moment, what it sounds like, or would you consider you having one or you made that decision without the rock bottom moment? Expand on that a bit. I don't really know how to define a rock bottom moment. I think it's different for everybody. I don't really know how to define that for myself and 
when I think about my life, I try to think when I hit my deathbed, whenever that's going to be, I don't want to look back and decide that I didn't live the best I could possibly live. And nobody has to live my life but me. And I'm not really interested in hitting a rock bottom. I, I want to go after that obstacle before it defeats me. So I think right now I want to look at the ceiling a little more. And I didn't maybe get to the point, thankfully, that I crashed into the ground. And Joy, you know, especially on media and TV, we, we think rock bottom and then sobriety. Like it has to happen. Well, I haven't hit rock bottom yet, right? And we justify it in our mind. I have not hit rock bottom. And rock bottom for me means this, job loss, UI, blah, blah, blah. But what I've heard consistently on this podcast, this might be for you as well. It's a sick and tired of being sick and tired. It, you know, during COVID, you said, think about what our lives are all about. Like I've got one of these. Well, reincarnation, we might believe in that or not, but that aside, that's not today. We're not there yet. You get one of them in this human body, in these, in these surroundings, this environment on planet earth. How do you want it to go? You, you know, is alcohol in line with that? I love how you unpack that a little bit. And so you, you quit drinking September 20th. Um, what was it like after that? But first, let me say earlier, you talked about these emotions that how do I deal with these without alcohol? Well, you did it. You've been doing it for two and a half years, but talk us about the very beginning. Yeah. So emotions, they're tough, right? Um, so post September 20th, uh, fear all the time. My body was so filled with anxiety and every form of fear, shame, guilt that I craved alcohol, shame that I was listening to this podcast for hours on end, like pacing in my kitchen. And just because I, I needed to create distance between me and, and booze at the moment, I didn't really understand. I think that that is a big piece of recovery that people forget is that recovery really means you, you have to recover what you lost at one point. And at some point, I think a lot of us forgot or were taught to ignore what our needs are. And we just needed to stay alive in the moment. And when I talk about emotions or what I was feeling at the time, I don't think I couldn't remember a moment where I could sit there on my own without any distraction, no phone, no food, no anything, and just sit with my discomfort and sit with the strong emotions that I've just stuffed for so long. And I remember kind of trying to process some of that stuff with alcohol. I would just take a bottle of Jack Daniels in the basement with me and just drink it and cry. For the longest time during those early sober days, I I found it really difficult to cry. Like I couldn't do it. I I again, my my brother and I are pretty close, but I would be at my brother's house watching a sad movie and just to make myself cry. He's like, "What are you doing to yourself?" Just like, "I have to process. Just let me do it." But it's gotten better over the years of learning. Okay. That's that emotion. Why is that showing up? Why do I have a craving now all of a sudden to go do something? Maybe I need to sit with that for a second, move through the tunnel so that I can come above ground again. The tunnels will keep coming, but also coming above ground will keep coming. And that's just kind of the life cycle I've learned finally. <laughs> Jory, I think when we get a little time away from alcohol, we can do just what you said is we can sit with it, let it go, go through the tunnel. And you're asking why, like, let's get to the source. Uh, I think let's be honest in the first month, two months, uh, early sobriety, it's, 
it's a big ass to say, what's the why? Why am I feeling this anger, this rage, this jealousy, whatever? But you, you get the foundation built, which I recommend what you do at first. Then you go for the why. Like, what is the source of this discomfort? I, I love that. We're playing the long game here. It wasn't, you know, the fear thing. I'm, I'm, I want to keep this podcast real and honest. Quitting drinking has been the hardest thing I've ever done. Caveat to that, the hardest thing I actually would have done was be to not quit drinking, riding that slow burn even further. What's up suicide? What's up death by driving in a car? So that's the disclaimer there. The hardest thing that any of us can do listening, me and you, Jordan included, is continue drinking down that path and go down the path of active addiction. But at the beginning, yeah, let's be real. I think you said you paced around your kitchen or just pacing. Yeah, sometimes the seconds are, are hours and the hours are years. It was minute um, by minute. I mean, that's I, all you have to. I mean, if the the more I thought, the more I got out of the mindset <laughs> talking about pacing. There was one time in my early sobriety too, where I found I found Eckhart Tolle and I listened to a couple of his podcasts, and I was pacing a beach in Maine for three hours listening to him, just trying to figure out what why am I feeling this anxiety? And he goes just in that calming Eckhart voice, like you know. You don't have to live your life 10 seconds in the future all the time or 10 minutes oh. in the future all the time. You're only where your feet are or you're only where you are right in that moment. And that that itself made me feel so just grounded. And I'm like, you're right. My body's actually okay right now. I'm good right now in this moment. And that's all I really need to worry about because I can handle this second. And it was just so powerful to me. It completely changed how I could see myself being sober in the future. Yeah, this sounds like a lofty statement, but the key the key to this whole addiction component is the pre- present moment. And mm-hmm. I heard that before. I'm like, come on, give me something better. This present moment sucks. Yeah. But yeah. at the end of the day, it is our relationship with this present moment. I love mm-hmm. Eckhart Tolle. I read a little bit of A New Earth this morning. He's been a, a, a major mentor and, mm-hmm. and spiritual guide for me mm-hmm. on my alcohol-free journey. Let's talk about recovery. Uh, recover what you lost, mm. right? It can be that simple. Recovery is a loaded word, just like alcoholic. But when you quit drinking, that's that's really what you're doing. You're recovering the relationship with yourself, the relationship mm. with the world, with the universe. And another incredible thing that we we need to do is learn how to have fun with that alcohol. You talked about all your photos and great moments were involved with alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't happen overnight with me, but very slowly I was able to have fun with that alcohol. I mean, that's the good old days when we were kids, go play in the sandbox, go play football outside with it. We were having good, genuine fun without alcohol. And if you can do that again as an adult, it's, it's blissful. Uh, Have you been able to recover that? The other morning I was on a run and it was cold and I was, it was just, you know, a basic bike path that I run every other day and it was cold. And it was, it was sunny and gorgeous, but it was chilly. And all of it, it just like the wind blew. This sounds ridiculous. I understand. If somebody was telling this story and I'm listening to it while I was drinking, I'd be like, oh, <laughs> but the wind blew, especially when it blew a little bit of snow off the tree. And it just like, it looked like somebody had just sprinkled confetti in the sun in front of me. And I just like, I had a moment, <laughs> a sober moment. Um, where just I got over, I got flooded with emotions. I just started crying. It was just like ah. one of the most beautiful things um, that I totally just would have ignored and blown past me. Like, oh, man, I got to get to work in like a half hour. I got to get in the shower and da, 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 da. all that stuff will happen. 
I know it will happen. I've planned ahead. I've done my planning before the run so I can get in the shower. Why can't I stop and just weep a little bit (laughs) and look at this beautiful thing in front of me? Okay. 17th century German philosopher Nietzsche said in a moment of stillness, uh, how little you need for happiness, like what little you need to suffice for happiness, something like that. It's not word for word, but I love how you said that. That happened to me this morning. I was shoveling snow again, a high of negative 12. I was out there for an hour and I had enough clothing on. I was sweating and I'm like, oh, this kind of sucks. I'm sweating. It's freezing on my face, but I just stopped and it rested my weight on the top of the snow shovel handle. And there was a gap. There was a little bit of blue sky, but it was snowing. Um, and I just saw it. There was a bird flying. I'm like, wow, I am, I am participating. I'm mm-hmm. active in nature. I am nature. Mm-hmm. This yep, is the miracle right of life. Mm-hmm. Similar to your story. What's on your bucket list in recovery, Jory? Well, trying to stay in the present, but bucket list. Now I have lots of things I want to do. I think that there's also a time in life where you're like, where you're focused more on growth. And then sometimes you have to take a minute and be content with the growth that you had so far. And I think right now in this moment, I am feeling that content after so much growth. Like I, I am in a studio apartment and I have a cat. I have a spoon and a fork. And like, I am so just content with having done what I needed to do this year when it comes to my job, when it comes to my relationships. And I feel like the baby steps are kind of what makes up a bucket list. And I think a lot of times we get overwhelmed with these grand gestures of like, oh, I really want to do this in the future. But really, it's like when I wake up today and go to bed, I want to find one moment of joy in the day. That's on my bucket list. If I wake up, I want my day to be fantastic, whether I'm shoveling snow in the backyard or I'm, I don't know, I don't know, playing hockey. That's the best thing I can think of. But I mean, I love to travel, so I'll probably go travel somewhere awesome next year. Not sure where. Yeah, I love it. We got a couple spots on our our trip to Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'd like to have you. Um, how, How has your physical and mental health changed without alcohol? My physical and mental health has completely changed. When I would, what started also in COVID was kind of my dietary weight lossy journey sort of thing. I, I lost around 70 pounds February of 2020 till the end of 2020. So I was kind of really questioning where my life was headed and going through all the categories of like, okay, is it my, is it my diet? Is it my work schedule? Is it this? Is it that? What is out of balance? Why is it so out of whack for me? Why do I feel so discontent inside and anxious every day? And slowly, I just checked things off the box. I started moving more. And each time I uncovered a little bit of like, oh, I used to do this as a kid. I used to go for runs because I wanted to. I used to go play sports. I used to go and paint something or write something and freaking loved it. And each time I started, alcohol would come in somewhere and it would remind me, oh, here's your anxiety. Oh, what are we trying to cover up here? And what sobriety's taught me is that it's okay to actually ask difficult questions. Even though they're scary, you have to, like you have to ask difficult questions to yourself in order to grow and move forward. And I didn't really know 
I didn't know the information that was available to me that I just, I, I had no clue that it existed. I didn't know what relationship codependency looked like. I didn't know that controlling something or someone isn't actually loving them. Mm. I didn't know that relationships with friends are, are mirrors to yourself. Like these kinds of things you, you learn when you try to peel your own skin off, so to speak, with sobriety. Yeah. And there's no way you can learn or reveal those things with alcohol in your life. There, there's no chance. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Yeah. Let's talk about these, these two years. Um, have you had in, have cravings? Was there a time you almost said, Hey, look, I don't have a problem with alcohol. I've got a year and a half. I'm two and some change. Um, what are you, and, and, you know, has there been a challenging moment? Did you almost drink? And, and also what are your thoughts on relapse? There are so many times that I can think of mostly with, if I had any kind of anxiety or emotional discontent, I think that relapse happens. And ultimately when you choose a different path in life, you just need to stay curious about yourself and where that's coming from. Why do you feel like you need that in that moment? Like why isn't what, what's going on in your body and in your mind? Again, it's like, going back to recovering what's authentically you and finding those obstacles is the most helpful way that I could, I could handle that. Moving into my own place and being alone, there's, there's always a temptation in the back of my mind to be like, nobody would know. I could go get a drink right now. Nobody would know it because I would just come home with my cat. My cat might look at me weird, but I don't know. But ultimately, nobody has to live my life but me. Nobody has to look at, I have to look at myself at the end of the day in the mirror and be like, did you do, did you live the best life you could have lived today? You know, are you designing the best life that you possibly can? So you don't need alcohol to run away from it. Sure. Yeah. Jory, before we hit the rapid fire round, I want to talk about, you, you, you said we're recording this before the turn of the new year. And you said, you got all the things done this year, right? And in another word, what came to mind when you said that it was you're showing up. You're doing your life obligations, your life duties mm-hmm. for yourself, for others, and you're showing up. Comment a little bit more about that. Like you, you get your foundation, you get a little bit of time away from alcohol, and then it's being an active citizen on this globe, which is kind to yourself, kind to others, showing up for people, honoring your emotions. Like, how has that been? How's, how, how's life in general without alcohol? Sure. This whole process has been so mind blowing and so earth shattering to me. I would never change a thing about it, even some of the bad moments, because I think that there's a lesson to be learned in the bad moments and we have to turn it into something for ourselves later. Sobriety is an effort. I told myself early that I wouldn't be a dry drunk. I I would be proactive in learning and participating with other people. Um, Connection with other people who have gone through something similar or haven't even gone through anything similar, but have that same urge to chase their emotions away with with booze is is enough to dig you out of a, of a hole for a minute and when you're on the day by day thing sometimes that's most important and i also think that learning boundaries and learning to say no in some of those relationships with people if that's your struggle can also be a positive lesson from sobriety. That was definitely one of my biggest points that would give me anxiety and anger and resentment and all those things. 
Yeah, no is a complete sentence. Yeah. I hear you there. Actually, one more question before the rapid fire round. So you're in cafe already. First off, I want to say thank you for being part of the community. Thanks for being part uh, of my alcohol-free journey. How how was how was cafe already for you? Cafe already for me was the only option because I I had tried a few other things. I had tried not knocking any other program or any other way. Everybody has a different way. I had tried the common things. AA. I I'm have nothing against AA. It helps a lot of people. I just felt as if my maybe they weren't speaking my language and I'm a young woman and I I wanted to speak to other people who had a similar story to me and so when I found Cafe Ari there were a lot more people my age who who had spirituality in mind and growth in mind and I loved it it I still do love it I love the community around me and the fact that I can reach out to accountability partners when I need to is amazing. Yeah, Jory, again, thanks for, thanks for being part of it. All right, we have reached the rapid fire round. We can answer these questions within 10 to 30 seconds. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, what's the one thing you've learned about yourself in sobriety? How to say no and letting uh, go. I love it. Best Tell alcohol-free me. moment. Best alcohol-free moment is when I went to a beach that I had been going to for 15 years in my favorite place in the whole wide world, realizing that I hadn't actually walked the beach in 10 years because I was sitting drunk at a picnic table at that beach. Um, when I walked that beach, it was amazing. What's your favorite alcohol-free drink? Uh, Lagunitas Hop Refresher. Mm. What's the point of life, Jory? Point of life is that there's no point of life. We're just nope. here. Yeah, no. All right. Uh, what's your favorite 90s band? My favorite 90s band? Oh, gosh. Oh, no. I want to say Blink 182. Oh, that's a good one. It is a good one. Yeah. I love Blink 182 as well. What are some of your favorite resources? My favorite resources, my therapist. Thank the heavens for her. She is amazing. Uh, Cafe Ari, obviously. And any bit of literature I can get my hands on. Yeah. Pineapple on pizza? Yes or no? Absolutely. All righty. Okay. Last question. What parting piece of guidance can you give the listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking? If you're scared, that's normal. Don't let the fear stop you. Try it anyway. You can always go back. And then before we depart, give listeners your own, you might need to ditch the booze if line. I think you might need to ditch the booze if you want to. Ooh. I don't think you need a story. I don't think if you want to try it, it's worth All it. All right. I like that. I haven't heard that before. I like that. Mm-hmm. And Jory, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Uh, much appreciated. Thank you, Paul. It was so fun. I appreciate it. In the book, Dopamine Nation, Dr. Anna Lemke has the line that says, people in recovery are modern day prophets. To maintain balance and wholeheartedness, we have to strike a pleasure-pain balance, which in a time of abundance and overconsumption means intentionally avoiding pleasure and seeking the kind of purposeful pain that keeps us healthy, such as exercise or resisting certain temptations. Dr. Lemke says, by doing that, we will reset reward pathways and ultimately be a lot happier. In the book, Dopamine Nation by Dr. Anna Lemke, she recommends a 30-day dopamine fast. It sounds great on paper and makes a lot of sense, but if you've been trying to quit drinking for quite some time, you've been on day one over and over, 
getting 30 days away from alcohol or a simple dopamine fast isn't that. It's not simple. But I do feel that's what needs to happen. Treatment or 30-day inpatient treatment is great for resetting these dopamine pathways. Sometimes you have to actually have to take yourself out of the environment where you're drinking to reset those pathways. I know there's a lot of stigma around in-person treatment, but that may be what you need. I also read an article from a normal drinker about those in recovery, and it was how they were envious of, of how they could do this, how they could on purpose stay away from pleasure, drinking, um, and maintain this equilibrium in life, right? It's not always that easy. Recovery isn't quite wrapped up in a bow like that, but they use the analogy of Homer's odyssey, that the person in recovery at their own will would tie themselves to the mast of the ship to avoid the siren song. So there is an incredible thing that people in recovery can do, and this doesn't happen overnight. It takes time and continuous work on recovery is we can live a life without the temptations to the dopamine system. Now, I have said on this podcast before, I think technology is going to be the greatest addiction of our time. And a, a formal characteristic of an addiction is it's way further ahead than we think. I think the claws of technology are already there. We have gaming rehab centers opening up all across the world. Uh, I think adults, a lot of people are addicted to their smartphone. But I think those who go through any type of addiction and develop those recovery tools, which we're doing now and in large numbers, I think this is going to be the wave of humanity that is going to show the rest of human beings how it's done, how not to be pulled by the siren song of, of dopamine. Okay, Recovery Elevator, it's been a blast to be here with you guys. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. I love you guys. Get it.